We're going to be looking at Acts 15, 36 to 41 this morning, just as our brother Jeremy read for us. Um, about 12 years ago, um, one of my favorite authors, Jerry Bridges, released a book, one of his, one of his best books, um, but really all of them are worth reading. And the title of the book is pretty memorable. It's called Respectable Sins. And uh, he defined that term, respectable sins, as the acceptable sins among the saints, the sins that Christians look the other way at, even though Christ doesn't. He says that it's sins that bring dishonor to God, but some seem to get a free pass in the church. So before we start Missions Month um, on September 20th, I want to talk about two respectable sins. Um, The first one's going to be how Christians handle disagreement, and the second is going to be related to gossip. How we treat one another that gets a free pass, and how we talk about each other that gets a free pass. Now, I'm not preaching on these because I'm aware that these are particular sins in our church that need addressing. There are particular sins in every church that needs addressing. That's why the New Testament talks about them so much. So we're going we're gonna to handle them uh, this morning as, 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 we, as we deal with them. I trust faithfully, generously, Christ-centeredly, and biblically. I want to start by telling you about a disagreement among God's people. The relationship between George Whitfield and John Wesley, the two great leaders of the 18th century revivals, can't be neatly described. Their association passed through very different stages. Whitfield arrived at Pembroke College, Oxford in 1732. He had heard of the Holy Club, as it was called, before he arrived. And after he arrived, Charles Wesley, John's older brother, kindly asked him to breakfast. And he was swiftly drawn into the fellowship. Whitfield spoke with the utmost deference and respect, his words, of the brothers Wesley, who had been to famous boarding schools and were slightly older than he was. During a period of acute trial and distress, George Whitfield was sent to, for advice to John Wesley, and thanks to his, quote, excellent advice and encouragement, end quote, Whitfield was delivered from the wiles of Satan. Whitfield later wrote, From time to time, Mr. Wesley permitted me to come to him and instructed me as I was able to bear it. Whitfield referred to John Wesley as his spiritual father in Christ. And his letters always address Wesley as honored sir. In 1736, uh, John Wesley entrusted the newly ordained George Whitfield with the oversight of the Oxford Methodists while he was away in Georgia. Yes, our Georgia. (laughs) Whitfield soon roared, to national fame, and became known as the boy preacher. Autograph hunters besieged him, no doubt to sell them on eBay, if there were such a thing in those days. A flood of pamphlets attacked him as well. He was lavishly praised and compared to Moses, to David, to John Wycliffe, and as a morning star of the Second Reformation. As Whitfield freely confessed, fame went to his head. He was in his 20s. You can't get that popular in your 20s and not have that happen, it seems. At this critical phase of the revival, young, exuberant Whitfield took the lead, dragging behind the older, more cautious John Wesley. 
In spring 1739, Whitfield took the momentous step of preaching outdoors, which was the first to the grimy coal miners around Bristol and then to the street poor of London. He was doing that long before churches had a pandemic to deal with and forced them, in some cases, to preach outdoors. And this, in fact, was used by God to turn the Methodists outward into more of an evangelistic group than they had previously been. Whitfield now pushed the reluctant and somewhat cautious Wesleys into following him as field preachers. In 1739, as vistas of astonishing evangelist success happened, new ministry was opening up. Whitfield and the Wesleys worked in close harmony with one another as brothers and as equals. When Whitfield won converts through his amazing sermons, he relied on Wesley to help organize and instruct them. A few months later, however, the two leaders were locked in angry debate. It was inevitable that the issue of predestination would trouble the movement. The Wesleys were unshakable Arminians who denied Calvinistic views of predestination, and at first, Whitfield agreed. But by the time he sailed to America in the summer of 1739, he was reading Calvinistic literature. Even before Whitfield departed, John Wesley had decided to attack the Calvinistic understanding of grace. And in March 1739, Wesley not only preached, but published a passionately Arminian sermon entitled Free Grace. The controversy was fueled when Wesley provocatively published Free Grace in America. After more than a year of silence on the matter, Whitfield at that time felt compelled to publish a public answer to his friend John Wesley's sermon. While Whitfield directly responded theologically, he, often, he also slipped in a personal jab in the letter. Publicly censuring Wesley for allegedly casting lots to determine whether he would publish the free grace sermon to begin with, which was a bizarre kind of way of handling God's direction. That was something that Wesley had told Whitfield in confidence not to be published in a paper. So Wesley's critics then would use this against Wesley for the next several decades as a result of what Whitfield wrote. Whitfield, when he was invited to preach in Wesley's headquarters at the London Foundry, scandalized the congregation by preaching, quote, the absolute decree of election in the most offensive manner, end quote, while Charles sat beside him fuming. Whitfield was outraged when Wesley wrote an anti-predestination pamphlet and sent it to America where Whitfield had been having great success. Later, Whitfield had a heated meeting with Wesley back in England, and Wesley gave the following account of the confrontation. Wesley said, he, that is Whitfield, told me that he and I preached two different gospels, and therefore he would not only not join with me or give me the right hand of fellowship, but was resolved publicly to preach against me and my brother Charles wherever he preached at all, end quote. Sometimes things can begin so well and end so poorly. Well, that happened in another such relationship that we're going to consider this morning between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. As we've seen in the case of Whitfield and Wesley, and as we'll see this morning in the case of Paul and Barnabas, Christians can have some sharp disagreements. 
Just look at the sheer number of evangelical denominations in our day or the points of contention within denominations or theological tribes, and it's easy to see that play out. The current debate over how to biblically address even social justice is one such example. These kinds of divisions can discourage us, give us pain, and even challenge our faith. But disagreements among Christians are nothing new. Indeed, the very apostle who exhorted Christians to be of the same mind, Philippians 2.2, 2, didn't always attain that ideal himself. See Acts 15.36-41. As we read in this morning's text, we read of a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and his close com- which, who was his close companion. So let's assess the incident briefly, and then we're going to draw three lessons from it. Okay. Number one, let's talk about the context of the disagreement. The context of the disagreement. Now I want to give you some background on Paul and Barnabas that we receive in the book of Acts. Prior to Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas had an amazing relationship. They were the best of friends. After Paul became a Christian, Barnabas endorsed him when nobody else would. Barnabas took Paul under his wing. Barnabas recruited Paul for missionary work in Antioch. See Acts 11.25. Paul and Barnabas ministered together, according to Acts 11.26, for a year there. And then together, Paul and Barnabas took a gift from the Christians in Antioch to the famine-torn believers in Jerusalem, according to Acts 11.30. They returned together to Antioch in Acts chapter 12. And then in Acts chapter 13, they were commissioned by the Holy Spirit and the church of Antioch and sent out on the first official missionary trip. In some senses, they were the first sent missionaries from a church in Christian history. They traveled together to eight, more than eight cities in Asia Minor. They stuck by one another when they were run out of Pisidian Antioch. In Acts 14, they were run out of Iconium together. These guys were in the trenches together. They'd suffered together. They'd been driven out of cities for preaching the gospel together. When the people of Lystra saw the miracle Paul did, they thought Paul and Barnabas were gods and they tried to worship them. Together, they refused that worship. And when Paul was stoned, who was there beside him but Barnabas? They didn't give up. They encouraged each other. They kept going. They planted churches together, according to Acts 14, 21 and 22. They returned to Antioch, and they had a missionary conference together in Acts 14, 27. They stayed a long time in Antioch together, according to Acts 14, 28. Now, when the Jewish traditionalists in Judea criticized what was happening up in Antioch to the north, Barnabas and Paul traveled together to Jerusalem to defend what God was doing at the beginning of Acts 15. They attended the 10th Jerusalem Council together. The church leaders appointed the two of them to take a letter of commendation back to Antioch together. And there they stayed a long time in Antioch teaching the word of God together. They engaged in mission together. They they visited and strengthened churches together. They contended for the gospel together. They suffered persecution together. They spoke at the Jerusalem Council together. And for years, they served Jesus side by side. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, accounts for the time gap between Acts 15.35 and Acts 15.36, indicated by the words, after some days, that we read here in Acts 15.36. 
This was the time immediately following the Jerusalem Council. And we read in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Paul writes, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For when certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But they came, he, when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So what happened? Following the Jerusalem council, Peter came to Antioch to visit with the Gentile believers, and he lavishly exercised his rights granted to him by the council's decision. You don't have to obey Jewish food laws to walk with Christ. He ate freely, he enjoyed fellowship with the Gentile converts. But not long after Peter's arrival in Antioch, there came a group of men from Jerusalem under the influence of Judaizers. And when they arrived, Peter, with his chronic insecurities that we see throughout the Gospels, immediately ceased fellowship with the Gentiles. And not only did Peter exercise this lapse in judgment, but Barnabas was pulled down with them. Paul confronted Peter regarding their regression from the Gentiles, and a peaceful resolution followed. Peter and Barnabas admitted to the error of their ways and restored fellowship with the Gentiles. And some might argue that the ill feelings that were created in this incident were still in play at the time of Paul and Barnabas' disagreement in Acts 15.36, since it was those very events that took place prior to their sharp disagreement. But because of the amicable nature of the resolution, there is no reason to assume the existence of any lingering negative feelings that would have any effect on this division between Paul and Barnabas. Although, no doubt, the wounds were there. It was a, it was a tense situation. So that's the context of their disagreement. I wanted to give you background to Paul and Barnabas' friendship, the ways that they served Jesus side by side together, they had been through the battles together. They planted churches. They preached the gospel. They suffered for Christ's name. And here arises this disagreement. So let's come to point number two, the nature of the disagreement. What did they fight about? What was the source of the contention? We read about this in verses 37 and 38. Let's read those verses again. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. I want you to stop with me for a moment and consider the matter from both men's perspectives. This is what the scriptures call us to do, right? Don't pick a side. Listen to both of them. Proverbs eighteen seventeen says that, you know, when one man comes and gives his side, it's best to reserve judgment until we hear the other side. Paul's rationale is given in the text. We're told exactly why he doesn't want to take John Mark, because he deserted his post. He left them last time, got too hot in the kitchen. We see in Acts 13, 13, that Paul, or that uh, John Mark had left Paul and Barnabas before. So surely, such defection was a serious matter, wasn't it? I mean, wasn't it Jesus who said in Luke chapter 9, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God? That's what John Mark did. Put his hand on the plow, 
and he threw the plow on the ground and walked away. Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with him if he did that. Or what about Proverbs 25, 19, Barnabas, that says, trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. That's God's word, Barnabas. What captain would be eager to take along a soldier who just deserted his unit on an earlier mission? What coach wouldn't bench a player for missing a blocking assignment? It certainly seems then that Paul was acting according to biblical principle. He had the Bible on his side. But guess what? Before we form a settled judgment, Barnabas had the Bible on his side too. The text doesn't give us Barnabas' reasoning, but perhaps we can infer from what we know about his character. What's the name Barnabas mean? Son of encouragement. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, when Paul was first converted, I alluded to this earlier, who was the one that vouched for him to the apostles that he was the real deal? I mean, Saul shows up to the apostles and says, this guy's just been killing Christians and now he claims he's converted, he ain't getting in among our fellowship. There's no way. He's got to prove it. We're not going to let him in to kill other Christians. He's probably faking us. And Barnabas said, no, he's real. He's real. God has changed him. Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. Now, I highly doubt that Barnabas would have defended John Mark's actions and said, oh, I know what Jesus said about putting your hand to the plow, but really, it's no big deal. No, he would have said, John Mark sinned. But he, wouldn't, but he wouldn't have agreed that that was the only way to handle it. He would have agreed that a gospel minister has to be faithful, and yet I believe he would have reminded Paul of another biblical principle. Paul, brother, as you well know, past sin and failure does not preclude future faithfulness and success. People do change. Right, Paul? So before we take sides, we should note that the agreement wasn't a matter of heresy or immorality. They weren't arguing over a fundamental of the faith, such as the deity of Christ, nor were they debating whether it was okay for a minister to live in adultery. Instead, we have two men, faithful to Christ, fully committed to Christ, disagreeing over the application of a biblical principle. The tension is that Paul was putting a greater emphasis on one principle and Barnabas was putting a greater emphasis on another principle. As they each placed their principles in the balance, the argument was over which way the scales should tip. Now, here we encounter the dilemma. Which is more important? Caring about individuals? Caring about the mission? Should we be task-oriented? Should we be relationship-driven? Maybe if we were to survey HBC, there would be some who'd be on Team Barnabas. Let's be people of grace. Everybody needs a second chance. Remember when Jesus came to Jonah a second time? And who told Peter after he betrayed him, feed my sheep? We all blow it. We all get a second chance in the kingdom. And then there'd likely be others of us who are on Team Paul. 
I mean, he did fail in the past, and we need to be people of character and dependability. I mean, too much is at stake here. Remember when Jesus said that those who put their hand to the plow and look back are not fit for the kingdom of heaven? Maybe some of us find ourselves squarely in the middle with Kent Hughes who said, our judgment goes with Paul, but our heart goes with Barnabas. (laughs) I want to think for just a moment how this could have been avoided. How could it have been avoided? Because, you know, we, we've got such sanctified ben, benefit of hindsight being 2020, don't we? We can just look and all oh, this could have been avoided. I want to give you seven ways it could have been avoided very quickly. Number one, what if they had paused to pray together? What if they had paused to pray together? In a wonderful letter penned to a friend who was about to publish a public critique of a fellow minister for theological error, John Newton wrote the following to him. He says, As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time you're preparing your answer, you commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. What if you did that for your Facebook posts? This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him, and such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. End quote. Timothy George recommends meeting for corporate prayer with disagreeing parties. He suggests a round of prayer meetings in which representatives of both communities meet together to pray for one another, to seek the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our study of the Scriptures, in our joint projects on behalf of the least, the last, and the lost, all around us in our efforts to be both faithful to our conscientious convictions and also agents of reconciliation within the evangelical family, end quote. Number two, what if they were slow to debate and quick to listen? Isn't this what James 1.19 says? Let everyone, and that includes you and includes me, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Proverbs 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Number three, what if patience and grace was exercised toward each other? Ephesians 4.2, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Number four, what if they remembered young Christians in an unbelieving world were watching their behavior? Number five, what if each had a humble, open-handed willingness to question the righteousness of his own perspective? Number six, what if each refrained from an argumentative and unyielding dogmatism in their theological opinions that were but mere inferences from other biblical ideas and concepts anyway? When we have theological disagreements with those who arrive at different theological inferences than we do, we must be gracious and humble, acknowledging our limitations as interpreters and as theologians. Ain't nobody got it all right. And that includes me and your pastors and this church. We must not presume the worst in our opponent because they do not make the same logical connections that we make. And number seven... What if they stopped to ask whether this was one where unity demanded unanimity or if unity would be undermined by the pursuit of unanimity? As a local church carries out its ministry, as it attempts to serve broken and messy people with all their complexities, as it attempts to navigate life in a hostile culture, it will will inevitably be faced with areas in which leaders and members disagree among themselves. Here's what Tim Challies counsels us to do in those situations. 
There'll be different instincts, different impulses, different feelings, different opinions, and different convictions. The church will need to be skillful and oh so humble in determining the nature of the disagreement. Is this an issue of essential Christian doctrine? Is it an issue of urgency when it comes to the health and practice of the church? Or is it an issue of lesser significance that should have no bearing on our unity? In other words, the church will need to be skillful in determining whether this is an area in which unity depends upon unanimity or whether it's an area in which unity will be undermined by the demand for unanimity. It will need to be humble in setting aside matters of preference out of love for others. It will need to always remember that God has called us to unity without uniformity. That God's purpose is to destroy division, yet without negating distinction. It's this kind of unity that's beautiful to the eyes of both God and man. So that was the nature of the disagreement and some of the ways it could have been avoided. But number three, what was the result of the disagreement? Look at verse 39 through 41. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the result of the disagreement was that there was a sharp disagreement. This word, sharp disagreement, implies there was a sudden violent outburst. And it gives some idea of the intensity of the situation. It wasn't just like, oh, we disagree, okay, I'll see you later. There were probably some harsh things said. Some, some, some tension was in the room, no doubt. But they went their separate ways. And notice this. Who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Luke. And he doesn't pick sides. Are you instructed by that? He didn't pick sides. He didn't say who was right. Did he? Did I, did I miss something? Did y'all see something in there where he picked a side? Luke doesn't give a clear judgment. He doesn't. He doesn't render a verdict. The difference to the brothers commending Paul and Silas, to the, or the reference to the brothers commending Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord, doesn't necessarily mean they were taking Paul's side. It may simply mean that in spite of Paul's separation from Barnabas, the church in Antioch wasn't going to cut Paul off. And even if they were siding with Paul, it doesn't mean they were right. Apparently, God doesn't want us to know who was mostly right and who was mostly wrong. Sometimes we do have to choose sides and form firm opinions. But in many cases, we don't. We may have concerns or suspicions, but in many cases, it may be the better part of wisdom to leave the matter with the Lord. We often look around and wonder why two great Christian leaders labor in different ministries. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't always expect us to take sides. Resist the temptation then to figure it all out and commit both sides to the Lord. Now your flesh will tempt you and other people will tell you that you're being lukewarm if you don't. Richard Baxter knew this, which is why he wrote in his practical works, regarding how to handle controversies like this. Here are the words of Baxter. He says, If controversies cause any divisions among you, look first to the interest of common truth and good in love. 
Do not become a passionate contender for any party in the division, but join more with the moderate and peacemakers than the divisive. Boy, that'll get you heat from both sides today. And all you're trying to do is be unifying. But you're compromising. Maybe not. Maybe not. Those who would, here's what Baxter goes on to say, those who would draw you into a contentious zeal, here's what they'll tell you. They will tell you that their cause is God's. And that you desert God if you're not equally zealous. They claim moderation and peace as a mark of being carnal and lukewarm. Some cry out, the cause of God, Baxter says, which is but the brat of a proud mind. He goes on to say, many of the ambitious and worldly-minded are blinded by their own carnal interests. As far as I have seen, Baxter says, moderation is the most judicious course among good Christians. Those that furiously censured these as lukewarm have been men that had the least judgment and the most passion and pride. From my observation, ignorant and self-conceited wranglers who think they are champions for the truth are venting their passions and fond opinions. These with formal enemies have caused the most suffering to the church down through the ages. End quote. Ryan Putman says, quote, some Christians seem to believe that the only choice they have in controversy is to give up their convictions or be contentious bullies. Brothers and sisters, neither is the biblically faithful option, end quote. It's not an either or. It's not an either or. Always. Sometimes it is deity of Christ, either or. Exclusivity of the cross, gospel, either or. Sufficiency and authority and inspiration of scripture, either or. Your opinion on such and such, not either or. <laughs> right? Thank you. Thank you. Somebody agrees that their opinion is not the word of God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> no, just... Okay, let's go to the application now. That's the scenario. I think we've mined it pretty helpfully. I want to give us three. Number one, disagreements between Christians are to be expected. Disagreements between Christians are to be expected. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we have too idealistic view of the church. And when some church or pastor disappoints us, we're tempted to question the power of the gospel or give up on the Christian faith entirely. But God wants us, and this is the reason, this, part of the reason this text is in the scriptures, is to make us biblical realists. If human finitude or remaining sin could hinder the harmonious relationship of two godly apostles, then it shouldn't surprise us when godly believers strongly disagree or even separate in our own day. Francis Schaeffer said, quote, Bible-believing Christians should never be shocked. There is a type of Christian who constantly draws himself or herself up and declares, I'm shocked. If he is, he's not reacting to reality as he should. For it is as much against the teaching of Scripture to romanticize men, himself, or others as to explain away sin. On the one hand, we should not view men with a cynical eye, seeing them only as meaningless products of chance. But on the other hand, we should not go to the opposite extreme of seeing them romantically. To do either is to fail to understand who men really are. Creatures made in the image of God, but fallen. See, God's servants are weak and inconsistent. Behold the Bible. 
We have examples all through it. Noah's drunkenness, Abraham's misogyny, Jacob's lies, Jesse's parental neglect, Elijah's self-pity, Moses' murder, David's adultery, Solomon's womanizing, Peter's abrasiveness and cowardice, and the Corinthian church's worldliness. And we have examples in church history. Whitfield promoted and Edwards tolerated slavery. John Wesley, who abominated slavery, fought, fought it. He had a disgusting marriage that no Christian should imitate. It was a terrible example. It probably should have disqualified him from ministry. Luther ranted about Jews in incredibly anti-Semitic ways. Cromwell killed Irish forebears and perpetuated the myth of the Irish being subhuman. In the 50s in England, you might see signs for renting apartments specifying no blacks or Irish or dogs. Augustine believed force could be used to shut down church dissent. Calvin agreed to the burning of Servetus. Brothers and sisters, we have issues <laughs> all throughout history. God's people are fallen and not perfect. That doesn't mean we get rid of them or rip their statues down. <laughs> but it does mean that we speak truthfully to what's going on and we represent it. Was that a political statement? I hope not. So what should we think about this? Schaefer, again, a helpful counselor, says the Bible's realism has implications for followers as well as leaders and these implications hold true whether we are following men now dead but survived by their books or men now alive. The first rule which brings us back to where we started is this. Do not be romantic about your Christian leaders. Do not idolize them. If you do, you will eventually find weaknesses in them, and you will turn on them when you find less than perfection. Let's say we're studying a biography of Hudson Taylor or William Carey. This is Schaefer continuing. And someone writes of some weakness in him. If we then kick the biography out the window, we're being romantic. We're not understanding the doctrine of sin. We should not be caught between idolizing and despising. If we revere a person too much and then find weaknesses, our first tendency will be to deny any value at all in the man. Are we not seeing that in our culture now? But this is not right. The Bible's not romantic, and we are not to be romantic either. We are not to minimize sin, but we can expect perfection from no one but God. If for some Christian who has helped us spiritually, we demand all or nothing, we will get the nothing. <laughs> all God's got to deal with is sinners. And he does great things through him for his own glorious graces, gracious purposes. So we live in an age in which God's revelation, though sufficient, is also partial, like a large puzzle with some pieces missing, but enough pieces that we can make the picture out. But this is one reason why genuine Christians don't always arrive at the same conclusions in their attempts to apply biblical principle. As Puritan Matthew Henry once observed, we shall never be all of one mind till we come to heaven where light and love are perfect. And not a moment before. So that's the first one. We need to expect disagreement. Number two, we also need to understand this truth. God overrules our disagreements for greater good. God overrules our disagreements for greater good. Now, I'm sure that Satan got some mileage out of that apostolic split in Acts 15. But nevertheless, what he meant for evil, God intended for good. Consider, as a result of the split, what happened. 
the missionary endeavor of the local church doubled in manpower. That's what happened as a result of the split. The missionary enterprise got bigger. We say, but, the church, but there was a split. God's kingdom advanced. That's what happened. More work could now be done. New churches could be planted. More churches than if they'd remained together. Paul's original proposal to Barnabas was merely to revisit the churches they'd already planted. That's what Acts 15.36 said, right? They were just going to go back to, to, to visiting churches they'd already planted. That was not the Holy Spirit's goal. He wanted them out. So he allowed for a disagreement to occur so that they would get out and not go back and visit the churches just yet. But they would go plant more churches. He wanted the work to expand into Macedonia and to Greece. So consider also how God may have used this dispute for the good of those involved. Think about this. What would have happened to Barnabas? His willingness to restore Mark likely gave Mark hope that God wasn't done with him and that he wasn't a perpetual second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven who was consigned to bench-warming for the rest of his earthly life. While Paul's tough love likely made him more determined not to repeat his mistake. I'm not going to abandon it again. Perhaps as a result of Paul's emphasis on faithfulness, Barnabas maybe became a little more watchful and more demanding of Mark. And perhaps Barnabas' emphasis on grace helped Paul to become a little bit more sensitive and patient in his later ministry. Indeed, we know that in later years, did you know this? Paul would do for a slave named Onesimus what Barnabas did for Mark. He advocated for someone who had failed another person to be restored. We read in Philemon chapter 7 or verse 17 through 19, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me, and if he's wronged you at all over anything, charge that to my account. He did for somebody else what he did not do for Mark later in his life. So let's look for ways in which God might be using disagreements and divisions among godly brothers for their good, for our good, and for the glory of his name, because he is. Thirdly and finally, sometimes what begins poorly ends really well. Sometimes what begins poorly ends really well. Despite sharp disagreement and even separation, Scripture seems to indicate that both parties continue to view one another as faithful brothers and to support one another's labors. This is beautiful. Paul continued to refer to Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, and 6 as an apostle of Christ and a fellow laborer in the kingdom. He didn't throw him under the bus. He continued to call him what he was, an apostle and a laborer in Christ. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, when Paul is writing his letter to the Colossians, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. If he comes to you, welcome him. We also read in Philemon 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting, and so does Mark, because he was attached to Paul again. Paul kept Barnabas and Mark on his prayer list. And I'm confident Barnabas and Mark did the same for Paul. And so don't allow your disagreement to be so firm that it can't be revised down the road. Paul later had to revise his opinion about Mark 
and was even humble enough to say this in his last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Can you imagine the joy in Mark's heart as he learned that Paul, who once doubted his usefulness, now desired it? And then, perhaps the greatest gift of all, to show that God is not ever done with his people, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Peter refers to Mark as my son. And it was, remember, that Mark is the shoulder that Peter looked over as Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark wrote a gospel. Paul didn't. Barnabas didn't. But Mark did. Because God is gracious. God is gracious. How can this end so well? Because the gospel triumphed in their hearts more than their personal agendas. That's the only way Christian unity ever happens. You've got to care more about Jesus than you care about your hurts. Paul and Barnabas remembered what they preached and that in all their disagreements, this they had in common. Acts 15, 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Period. That's how we get saved, by grace and grace alone. Not by our great work, not by our tenacious missional zeal, but by Jesus Christ and him alone. Well, let me conclude with how Whitfield and Wesley concluded. Whitfield was the first to reach out to John Wesley sending more than one unanswered letter. He, got a lot of le- he sent a lot of letters, and he didn't get any responses for a while. But he, in those letters, Whitfield repeatedly apologized for the way in which he'd publicly conducted himself, especially with regard to his public rebuke of Wesley's casting lots. Now, just so you know, there's been, there's been much discussion over why Whitfield felt compelled to include that and kind of throw Wesley under the bus publicly a little bit. Um, and this is, I want to I inform you, this is, this is when you shouldn't write things. You shouldn't write things when you have a lot of hurt in your life. We need to be careful about how much we let our personal trials color our disagreements. Whitfield was under great pressure. Historian Alan Coppage lists several. He said, when Whitfield wrote this letter to Wesley where he included this kind of personal jab... He was over a 1,000 pounds in debt, facing potential legal consequences. Whitfield's friend and financial supporter, William Seward, had been stoned to death in Wales following Seward's open-air preaching, no doubt following Whitfield's example, and he felt pressure from that. Think about it. Your friend's doing what what you're doing, and he gets killed? The crowds that heard Whitfield's preaching began to drop from tens of thousands to just hundreds, Friends abandoned him. His publisher stopped working with him. His marriage proposal to Elizabeth Delamotte was rejected, and she was soon married to another man. And while still only in his mid-20s, Whitfield's health was very poor. And this stress probably contributed and colored the way he responded to Wesley. So be very careful the way your trials inform the way you interact with other Christians. 
though the doctrinal disagreements were too great for there to be any shared organization between their respective Methodist societies, they continued to have a renewed commitment to do ministry together that never diminished. By by 1742, tempers between Whitfield and Wesley began to cool. No merger of the two camps ever occurred, but there was at least reconciliation between the leaders. Whitfield was welcome to preach among Wesley societies, and Wesley even lent Whitfield one of his best preachers to work at the tabernacle. Whitfield refused, now listen to this, Whitfield refused to build Calvinistic chapels in places that already had a Wesleyan society. He wasn't going to promote church shopping, church hopping, even where he had good reform theology, and they didn't. Wesleyan agreed to the reverse. More than once, Whitfield acted as a mediator when John and Charles were having disagreements. At one point, when Wesley appeared to be near death, Whitfield wrote him and said, A radiant throne awaits you, and ere long you will enter into your master's joy. Yonder he stands with a massive crown, ready to put it on your head amidst an admiring throng of saints and angels. In 1770, the year of his death, Whitfield wrote to Charles, As my very dear old friend, and described John as your honored brother. To each, he gave them a mourning ring, mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, in a token of an indissoluble union with them in heart and Christian affection, notwithstanding our points of, notwithstanding, quote, our difference in judgment about some particular points of doctrine, end quote. On Whitfield's death, Charles penned a noble elegy, and at Whitfield's request, his funeral sermon was preached by none other than his former opponent, John Wesley. And in that sermon, John Wesley said, quote, Let us keep close to the grand scriptural doctrines which he everywhere delivered. There are many doctrines of a less essential nature which regard to which even the sincere children of God, such as the present weakness of human understanding, are and have been divided for many ages. In these we may think and let think, we may agree to disagree. Now, that's the first place that ever appeared in print. That phrase, agree to disagree, from all we know, came from a John Wesley funeral sermon at George Whitfield's funeral. But meantime, let us hold fast the essentials of the faith which were once delivered to the saints, in which this champion of God so strongly insisted on at all times and in all places. Wesley and Whitfield had different convictions about the meaning of Scripture that were never resolved on this side of eternity. However, they grew to understand that doctrinal disagreement need not result in public hostility or personal resentment, especially among Christians committed to the gospel, to biblical authority, and to the kingdom of God. Whitfield later wrote, I truly love all that love the glorious Emmanuel, and though I cannot depart from the principles which I believe are clearly revealed in the book of God, yet I can cheerfully associate with those that differ from me if I have reason to think that they are united to our common Christ. End quote. In conclusion, one of Whitfield's followers, who obviously still held great animosity against Wesley, said to Whitfield, We won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? Whitfield humbly replied, Yes, you're right. We won't see him in heaven. He'll be so close to the throne of God, and we will all be so far away, we won't even be able to see him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, the ways in which your word 
anticipates the disagreements among your people and provides the way forward. And we thank you for the ways in which we see that played out in church, church history, even as we've considered the story of, your two, of two of your sons, dead now and in glory long ago, George and John. Thank you for their example. Thank you for what you did in and through them in spite of all their weaknesses and sins. And thank you for the ways in which you continue to work in and through us despite ours. Lord, make us to be a people who radiate and emanate that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make that to be the central cornerstone and the aroma of our lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.